The scripture reading for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Lord, let your light shine now and let all else fade. I pray that everything else that could possibly rise up to be in competition with you would fade away now. Let the glory of Christ shine among us. We need you And we need the light of your glory more than we need anything else, even if we don't recognize that fact. So I ask you now, Lord, to come, strengthen me, glorify your name, feed your sheep, save the lost, heal the sick, encourage the discouraged, do whatever you would do this morning, Jesus. We give ourselves to you, we give this very time to you, and I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight our rock, our friend, our redeemer, our savior. Amen. For the last few weeks, we have been discussing the nature of leadership and submission in the context of marriage because that's what Paul addresses in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and we're just working our way right through the book. Among other things, we have seen that the main dynamic in the marriage relationship is vertical and not horizontal, which is to say that the main dynamic is that husbands and wives both are first to look to God, worship Him, put Him first in their lives, and then out of love and reverence and grace from Him, we play the roles that God has called us to play. Now all of this implies that striving to have a biblical marriage is in fact an act of worship, because it's mainly about God. So when a husband seeks to know Christ, and then to imitate Him by the way He loves His wife and lays His life down for her, He is essentially worshiping Jesus, and not essentially uh, loving His wife. The first thing that that's about is the relationship with Christ. When a wife seeks to know Christ and learn of Him and love Him and become like Him, and then she imitates Him in the marriage by submitting to her husband as Christ does to the Father, she is essentially worshiping Christ. And so again I say that the main dynamic in marriage is vertical and not horizontal. And therefore to build a biblical marriage is to worship God. To build a biblical marriage is a sacred thing. It's a very, very sacred thing. 
Another thing we've seen over the last few weeks is that whereas male and female are equal in Christ, husband and wife are something more than equal because they are one. The Bible says that the two shall become one flesh, and indeed they are. So when a husband loves and leads his wife as Christ does the church, he's to love and lead her as though she is himself because in some profound sense, she is. And when a wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ, she's to do that as though her husband is herself because in some mysterious sense, he is. The two, although always maintaining their individualities, have in some profound sense become one. And this leads to the things that I want to share with you this morning. There is a part of me that wants to talk about marriage for several more weeks because there's so much to say here. There's so much to be learned. There's so much to rejoice in. There's so many false ideas to be corrected. But given the reality of the calendar and more importantly what I sense the Lord telling me to do, I'm going to conclude my thoughts on marriage today. I kind of have four thoughts that are randomly connected but not necessarily so. If I don't touch on something that's really important to you, or if I don't say enough about what I do touch, then please feel free to come and talk to me about that or email me or call me. I would love to talk through whatever's on your heart with you. So four things. Number one, marriage is perhaps the most sacred of human relationships, and we should all have a sense of awe about it. Marriage is perhaps the most sacred of human relationships, and we should all have a sense of awe about it. The reason I say perhaps is only to guard against an overstatement, but I must admit that I cannot think of a human relationship that is more sacred than marriage and more profoundly uh, awe-producing than marriage. Even at a base physical level, there's no other relationship where human beings share in such intense and intimate contact with one another. And of course, I am referring here to marital intimacy But I'm also thinking about things like hand-holding and and the touching of the face, things that, if you think about it, very few people in your life have permission to touch your face. And no one has permission to touch your face in the way your spouse does. And so there's something very special and different and sacred about that. At an emotional level, there is no one other than your spouse that knows you like she or he knows you. There's no one. Even if in your marriage you're not really that great at communication, over time... You will know your spouse and your spouse will know you better than anyone else on the planet because you just can't live in that close of proximity with someone without being revealed to them. You can put on a veneer for a a span of time perhaps, but over time who you really are will come out to your spouse more than anyone else on the planet. And for those of us who are better at communication by the grace of God, there is no one who knows our hopes and fears and our, our dreams and our failures and our our whatever, our triumphs and our tragedies than our spouse. I love my father and my mother and my siblings and my daughter with all my heart, but nobody on this earth knows me like this woman here knows me. Nobody shares in my innermost thoughts and feelings and passions and fears than this woman here. No one on the earth shares more sacredly who they are than with their spouse. And then finally, at a much more significant level than the physical or emotional level, the oneness in marriage that I, that I mentioned earlier is designed by God to be a reflection of His very being. And this is true in marriage in a way that it's not true of any other relationship. And here's what I mean. God is three persons, one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All God, 
Three separate persons, one God. Marriage, in a similar manner, is husband and wife, but one flesh. And that is to reflect the being of God. And furthermore, even as God created human beings in His own image and His own likeness, He has granted to husband and wife alone the power and the privilege of creating other human beings in their own image and in their own likeness. Now, of course, men and women out of wedlock can produce children. I'm aware of that. But that is by sin and it's by rebellion against God. It is not by the design of God. And a man and a man and a woman and a woman can in no case bear a child together except by extraordinary medical means. But that is nothing but a, but a perversion of the wisdom and the design of God and it requires a third person. Only to wives and husbands has God granted the privilege of creating human beings who are like us, who have all the capacities we have, physical and emotional and intellectual and spiritual, beings who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. And this reality inside of marriage is meant to reflect the creativeness of our God and Father. Even as He creates, so He has granted to husband and wife the power and the privilege of creation. Last Friday, I went on a tour of Elk River with the Chamber of Commerce, and as part of that tour, we got to tour through a couple of manufacturing facilities here in Elk River. One was called Sport Tech over by the Walmart, and another was called Metalworks or something like that up just northwest of here by the Cretex plant there. As we walked through those facilities, I became really amazed with the creativity that God has invested in human beings. I mean, you would not believe some of the machines that people have created to create some of the products that you and I use. It's really amazing. And so as I sat there, looking at the parts that they make, this one company over here makes surgical instruments, and it's just fascinating to me, and very technical, very difficult to do. And then you look at the machine that created it, and I got to thinking, which came first, the machine or the parts? So I asked the owner of the company, I said, which, which came first? And where does the parts come from for the machines that make the parts? And so his answer to me was, seriously, he said the machines make the parts for the machines that make the parts. This is a chicken and egg kind of a thing. It was blowing my mind. But what really blew my mind was to think about all the complexity of all this and realize that God created beings who were that creative. People who could think up products and then think up ways to create those products. It, it amazed me. Then that night, as my mind turned back toward my sermon, I realized that husbands and wives have been granted a privilege of creation that is infinitely more profound than any manufacturing genius. We have been granted the infinitely great privilege and ability of creating human beings, as I said, who are in our own likeness, with our own capacities, and who will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. That takes my breath away. It's a sacred, sacred thing. Please don't misunderstand me when I say what I'm saying. I am clear that only God creates human beings in His image. We don't have any clue about what it actually takes to put a human being together in all that that means. We have no clue. But what I am saying is that God has granted husbands and wives a part in His creative act. And that makes marriage amazingly sacred. Amazingly sacred. There is yet one more reason why marriage is perhaps the most sacred of relationships, and that is this. 
Marriage is designed by God to both embody and proclaim to the world the mystery of the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church. Jesus Christ is very God of very God. He emptied Himself, came to the earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, died a heinous death on a cross, He was buried in a grave, rose again from the grave, ascended to be with the Father where He is right now, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning the entire universe. And He did all that so that whosoever would believe in Him would have eternal life and would not perish. And He said in John 17.3, He defined what eternal life is. And He didn't say that it is life without end. He said that eternal life is to know God. Here is what He said specifically. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Our Lord and our Savior did all that He did so that we who once were rebellious enemies of God, the Bible says of us, that we might come into eternal communion with God through Him. And this is where things, to my mind, take a very, very profound turn. Because Jesus did not reconcile us to God and then keep us at a distance from God as it were. Rather, Jesus reconciled us to God in Himself and thereby brought us unspeakably near to God. And the way that He did this was that He chose to unite Himself with the church as husband with bride. And that ought to strike awe into your soul because Christ is God. The church of Christ has become the bride of God. That's amazing. That is amazing. When I return from Europe, Lord willing, I want to probe into this more deeply with you. For two weeks, I want to talk about the nature of Christ in the church because it's really a profound thing that I think we need to get our minds around if we're going to be the kind of church He wants us to be. But for this morning, I'd like us to think about the fact that marriage was specifically designed to embody and proclaim this great mystery. It's such a great mystery that Paul even says, this is profound. Paul says a lot of profound things. I'm not aware of another time in the Bible where he himself says, whoa, this is profound. But this is profound. And marriage is supposed to embody it. Marriage is supposed to be a tangible, physical example to the world of the intangible spiritual reality that Christ has become one with His church as husband to bride. And therefore, beloved, marriage is utterly sacred. It is utterly sacred. I don't think there is another relationship on the planet that is so sacred. Hebrews 13.4 therefore says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous, which is to say those who sin sexually inside of marriage and outside of marriage. Regardless of our respective marital statuses and our respective histories, we are all commanded by God to hold marriage in a very high honor and even to have a sense of awe about it. And I hope that I've been able to show you at least a a glimpse of why that is so. If we fail to do so in thought or in deed, we have sinned against God. And we can be sure that we will receive the judgment of God based on Hebrews 13.4. If striving toward a biblical marriage is an act of worship, 
then undermining or demeaning marriage in any way, shape, or form is an act of rebellion against God. And if we don't repent and receive the mercy of God in Christ, we will answer to Him for that rebellion. One of the implications of this is that I I think every single one of us, no matter what our history, no matter what our present status is, every single one of us has to seek to root out of our hearts, to root out of the church, to root out of the world, anything that demeans or diminishes or undermine marriages. We must strive to kill lust in all its forms. Men tend to lust in one way, women tend to lust in another. With men it's images, with women it's things like romance novels and things like that. But we all lust. We have to kill it. Because what that is doing is undermining, it's spitting in the face of the beauty of the vision of God. We must kill it. We must strive to lovingly warn people away from too quickly or unwisely entering into marriage. Marriage is a very serious thing. It's a sacred thing. More than we realize. And we cannot sit by idly while people are being flippant with it and not say something. We must lovingly counsel against divorce in all but the most extreme cases. We must lovingly oppose so-called gay marriage and even civil union unions, which in my mind are nothing less than marriage. We must lovingly do all of these things, not because we think ourselves better or because we think ourselves are sin less serious than other people's, but because of the sacredness of marriage, of the sacredness of what God has done. Out of love and reverence for God and what He has created and is creating in marriage, we must, as Christian people, rise up and protect it with humility for the rest of our lives. Married people, when you look into the eyes of your spouse today, I pray that you will have a renewed sense of the glory of the thing that God has granted to you. I pray that you will see something more than you've ever seen about the sacredness and the privilege that God has granted you in granting you this partner as an image of Himself and as an image of Christ and the church. Even if you're going through a tough time in your marriage right now, I really believe that seeing the beauty of what God has done in you will help you get through those difficulties because it will put those things in proper perspective. Let marriage be held in honor among all, especially those of us who are married, because it is perhaps the most sacred of human relationships. Second thing, I want to say just a word to those of you who have sinned against God by sinning against marriage, whether that be through lust or promiscuity or adultery or hard-heartedness towards your spouse or um, whatever it might be. On the one hand, I need to say again, as I probably already said clearly, that if you don't repent, the judgment of God will land upon you. This is not a small thing that you're playing with. It's a big thing. Probably on a human level, the biggest thing that you can play with. And you shouldn't play with that. If you don't repent, you will face the judgment of God. However, the good news is that if you are willing to humble yourself before God and by His grace and power, repent from your sins, you can be free from those sins. First John 1, 8 and 9 says this, If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, here's the promise, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So my word to those of you who are willing to repent, or maybe you've already repented of your sin, is that if you do that, the mercy of Christ can and will come into your life and wash your sins away. He will take your sins away. Corey Ten Boom used to love to say 
that God will take your sins if you humbly confess them, bury them at the bottom of an infinitely deep ocean, and then He will post a sign there that says, No fishing! Your sins are gone forever. No one is allowed access to them. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far will the Lord remove your sins from you. And once He has done that, then I think the word to you and to all of us is go and sin no more. Honor marriage for what it is. Root out any competition against it from your heart and from your home. I would venture to guess that in a room even of this size with only about a 100 people in it, I bet you there's at least a few of us who feel somewhat paralyzed by guilt and shame over our sin that was committed either sexually or, or in terms of our marriage specifically. I would just about guarantee you that. You may be functioning well enough on the outside, but the truth is on the inside of your heart, you know there's a paralysis there, especially when it comes to God and to the things of God. Well, I want to say to you again, If you are willing to humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sin, this word belongs to you. I've got three texts I want to read to you. Please receive them. First one is Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friend, if you will come to Christ, you can be clean. Your conscience can be clean. Your body can be clean. So come to Him. First John 1 John 1.9 again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. So brother, sister, steeped in guilt and shame, my word to you is receive the conscience-cleansing, body-washing mercy of God in Christ and be free. Be free. This very morning, be free in Christ. Third thing, I want to say a word to those of you who are living in, let's say, less than ideal marriages. Perhaps your spouse is not a believer. Perhaps your spouse is a believer but not walking with the Lord or just has a hard heart toward the Lord. Perhaps your spouse is abusive at some level or unresponsive or any number of things. Well, if that's you, I have three things to say to you this morning. I know probably for you these last three weeks have been hard. Sometimes the laying out the beauty of God's vision for things can be like a knife to the heart because of the difference between that reality and the reality in which we live. So if that's you, I have three things to say to you this morning. First of all, the pain that you're feeling in your heart is a real pain. It's a valid pain. And I think that you probably will be helped by seeing something about the root of that pain and where it comes from. When something that is truly sacred is not upheld as sacred, it deeply grieves the heart of God. And it deeply grieves the heart of those who love God because we are made in His image. We were created to grieve over the things that grieve the heart of God. So, the pain that you're feeling about your marriage, you know what it is really? It is an echo of the heart of God. It is a sharing in the pain of God over the brokenness that you are having to live in. 
The reason I think that that insight will help you is because it will cause you, or at least tend to cause you, to look upward toward God with whom you are sharing in His heart rather than outward toward your husband or wife who is causing your pain. It will cause you to cling to God and seek your needs in God rather than in your spouse. And therefore, I think it will help you to overcome the very real things that you are facing. Colossians 3, 1-4 says this, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, even marriage. And Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So, my first word to you is turn your eyes upward toward God. Share with Him in grief, but grieve as one who has hope. And that hope is one day, if you are in Christ, you will appear with Him in great glory and you will commune with Him forever and ever and ever. That ought to put your temporary pain in perspective if you'll let the Lord do that for you. Second thing I have to say might be a little bit counterintuitive, and it's this. I would encourage you to look at the Bible carefully, especially Genesis 1 and 2 and, and, and Ephesians 5 here where we're at. Meditate carefully about the beauty and the nature of the design of God for marriage. And as you do that, Try not to turn your mind too much to the practical things that you're facing. And instead, just turn your mind toward the beauty of what God has done. Let His mind transform your mind. Let His vision strike awe into your heart. And then, as you grow more and more in your understanding and appreciation of what God is doing, obey Him to the extent that you can and pray for your spouse. Your spouse's attitudes or actions may not allow you to obey Him to the fullness of what you want to obey. But that is your spouse's problem. Your spouse will answer to God for that. What is your problem is to obey your Father to the extent that you can. So what I would say to you is obey the Word, pray for your spouse, trust your Father for the things that you can't control. Obey the Word, pray for your spouse, and trust your Father. Leave these things into His hands. He knows more than you do. And... More importantly than giving you a good marriage, He is trying to shape you into His image. And it could be, if you would open yourself up to it, that all the pain you're enduring might, in fact, shape you shape you to be much more like Jesus. Final thing I would counsel you is to prepare your heart so that if and when your spouse repents of his or her own sin against you, you'll be ready to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. You will be ready to free that person from guilt and shame as you, in fact, were freed from your guilt and shame by Christ. If your spouse has already repented, but you have had a hard time forgiving that person, you've been unable, unwilling, for whatever reason, to forgive, I would counsel you to look to Christ and let go of that. I want to say this lovingly, but straightforward. You don't have a right to hold someone captive that Christ has freed. I don't have a right to hold anybody captive that Christ has freed. So if Christ has forgiven your husband or your wife, you need to forgive them too. Freely you have received from Christ, now freely give and forgive that person. So, first counsel, look to God. Set your mind on the things of God. Grieve with Him, but grieve with hope. Final thing, Be ready to forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Finally, number four, 
I want to say a word about how I think leadership and submission ought to look in a Christian household from day to day because I think that even when we understand the headship and submission thing, theoretically, a lot of us still struggle with what that, what should that look like from day to day. When you leave church today and live your life and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, what's this thing supposed to look like? So I just want to say a final word about that. The husband's authority in the marriage does not mean that he should always get his way. And I heard the women say, Hallelujah, preach it, Pastor. The husband's authority in the marriage does not mean that the wife doesn't get to express her opinion or try to persuade her husband or even at times dig her heels in because she feels so passionate about something. It doesn't mean any of that. What it does mean, though, is that before God, the husband is responsible and accountable for the atmosphere and affairs of the households. Okay? Men, you want to be leaders? You want that position of authority? Here's what you get. You are accountable and responsible before God for the atmosphere and the affairs of your home. You are responsible for creating a God-honoring atmosphere where the Bible is treasured and read, where prayer is valued and practiced, where worship is encouraged and often sung. You are responsible for creating a self-sacrificial tone in the home by laying down your life there, sacrificing your agenda, sacrificing your wants and needs for the glory of God, the good of your wife, and the good of your children in that order. You are responsible for seeing to it that there is a, a sort of emotional warmth in your home where people feel safe around you and around your wife and feel nurtured in the things of God. You are responsible for organizing and delegating the responsibility of the home so that all of those necessary things are seen to with timeliness and with excellence. You are responsible for mobilizing your family to get out of themselves and into the vision of the kingdom of God. You're responsible for helping them see that the family is not the end product of the family. But communion with God and participation in His mission around the world, that's the end-all, be-all of the family. You may not personally do everything that I just mentioned, but you are responsible to see that all of that gets done. That is what is on you. That is what it means to be a leader. The authority of the husband in the marriage does not mean that he's to be a dominating dictator and always get his way. God forbid that anyone at this church thinks like that or treats their wives like that. Rather, it means that he is to be a Christ-like, self-sacrificial servant in the home who takes responsibility, who instigates, who sets the pace in the home for the pursuit of Christ, and who sees to it for the glory of God that all the affairs of the home are dealt with in a way that is glorifying to God. That's what it means. A, A real husband and a real leader shouldn't have to be prodded, poked, and nagged to get off the couch and do what God has called him to do. He's the one getting off the couch and saying, Family, we're going to seek God today. We're going to read the Bible today. We're going to praise the Lord today. We're going to serve Him today. We're going to do chores today. Amen. Everybody said hallelujah. Whatever it is, He's the one to get up off the couch and get the ball rolling. Get the thing started. Men, the good news for you is that even though all of that responsibility is in fact upon you and in my home, it is in fact upon me, we don't have to do all this stuff alone. We have a partner. God has given us a partner. We are to treat our wives as more than equals. We're to treat them as one with us because in some profound sense, that's exactly what they are. 
We are to treat our wives as a treasured gift from God because that is exactly what they are. Remember last week, we saw from Genesis that the Lord made the woman and gave her to the man as His helper. And we saw that what that means is not that she is less than, but that she has come to fill up a lack. She has come to fill up a weakness. She has come to be a partner with you in this life in Christ. So brothers, be wise. Consult your wives. Listen. Really listen to your wives, to their thoughts and feelings. Try to come to one mind with her about whatever it is that you're talking about or or dealing with. See her as a partner in fulfilling the mission that has been put on your shoulder. Namely, to govern the atmosphere and affairs of your household. You are one with her. So lead her as if that were true. Lead your home as if that were true. Your children should look at you and husband and wife and and somehow in themselves think to themselves, I can't even think of mom without dad. I can't even think of dad without mom. They are so much one together. They are so much united that I can't think of them in any other way. I don't mean that they should see you as perfect or never see you fight or anything like that. I'm not not trying to to paint an overly idealistic picture. I'm just saying they should see you as partners, as one flesh before God. May that be in our homes, Lord Jesus. All of this implies so many things. This is why I want to preach like 10 more weeks on marriage, but I won't and I can't. So I'm just going to mention two things briefly. I know we're running long, but two more things and we'll be done. First of all, Husbands, your oneness with your wife implies that you ought to take the time to discern and take full advantage of all of her gifts. All of her gifts. If she's skilled in theology, or the Bible, or praying, or serving, or raising your children, or organization, or doing the finances, or whatever she's good at and gifted at, then figure that out, fan it into flame, and watch her fly in the sky of Christ. Like a pastor in a church. Your job is not to do everything or to be the end-all, be-all in the home. Your job is to equip your wife so that she can become all that she has been made to be in Christ. And guess what? If you will cooperate with her to become that, it will bless you more than you could possibly imagine. Because everything God has created her to be has also been created to be a blessing to you. So again, my counsel to you is help them in whatever way you can, to flower and grow in Christ and then utilize their gifts. One of Kim's greatest gifts is the gift of discernment. I've often said that women's intuition plus the Holy Spirit equals the gift of discernment. And Kim has that in spades. She's got a really good gut in Christ. Sometimes she can't always tell me why, but something real is going on in there and I've learned to listen to it. Two times... In 17 years of marriage and ministry, I decided to go against Kim's gut with two big decisions. And both times, I really regretted it. So guess what? I don't do that anymore. No one gets hired at glory of Christ unless they pass the Kimmy test. That's what we say. What does that mean? We have dinner with the person. We talk. We pray. And then I look to Kim and say, what do you think? And she tells me, I don't look to her as God, but I really trust her gut. She's always been right uh, when it comes to things like that. And I, it's my joy to utilize her gifts. Husbands, figure out what your wife's gifts are and use them. Be wise. Help her to fly in the sky of Christ. One issue here, though. 
when it comes to Bible and theology, if she is really gifted at those things, and some women are, you cannot completely delegate that to her. I would fan that into flame in her, but you cannot completely delegate that to her. And here is why. Christian leaders must lead by teaching, and they must teach by the Word of God. That's the will of the Lord. Whether a leader is a husband or a pastor or whatever, Christian teachers, leaders, lead by teaching, and we teach by the Word of God. So you can be a theological partner with your wife. You can bask with her in the beauty of truth and the Word of God. You can instruct one another. You can spur one another on to love and good deeds. All of that. But you cannot abdicate your responsibility to lead by the Word. Some men in my ministry have said to me that they're just not wired to think theologically and biblically, and they just can't do it. I had one or two men literally say to me, I cannot do it, Pastor. And to be honest with you, my reaction to that is, I don't believe you. And the reason I don't believe you is because I believe the Bible. And the Bible says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Okay? That's either true or the whole Bible is false. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That means if He calls you to be a husband and thus to lead a family, He has given you sufficient capacities to comprehend the Word and to utilize it in the leadership of your family. So don't let your flesh deceive you. Don't let it happen. Trust God, read the Word, lead your family by the Word. And in the meanwhile, fan into flame your wife's theological and biblical gifts. It may be that for the rest of your lives, she outstrips you in these things. I don't have a problem with that. Just don't abdicate your responsibility is all that I'm saying. Be the kind of leader that God has called you to be, and that is a man of the Word. I promise you, brothers, your wives will respect you a lot if they see in you a man of the Word. You don't have to outshine them theologically. You just have to be a man who's serious about going after God. Second thing, and I'll be done. Your oneness with your wife implies that you ought to strive to make decisions together with her rather than being a dictator. When it comes to decision-making in marriage, I really believe in consensus-based decision-making. In other words, I really believe husband and wife should strive to come to one mind and make decisions together. So let me take a practical example of buying a new car. That's a big enough decision that it might matter. If I was in that situation, I would say the husband and the wife ought to work together to figure out what kind of car, what make, what model, what color, what price point, how you're going to buy it, when you're going to buy it, all the big details You should make these decisions together. You should struggle together, strive together, come to one mind together, make the decision. If you come to an impasse in a situation and you just cannot come to one mind, then I do think, biblically speaking, that the man has the final say in that situation. Otherwise, it means nothing that he has authority in the marriage. So I do think the man has the final word. But brothers, please hear me carefully. That does not mean that you always should get your way when you can get your way. Sometimes for the good of the family, you should deliberately not get your way. You should never use your position in the family for your personal advantage. You should always use your position in the family for the good of the whole family. And sometimes that means sacrificing your own wants and needs. There's been plenty of times where Kim and I didn't quite agree on something, and so we just held off. I just didn't make the decision to go forward because I cared more about the peace 
between us and between us and the Lord than I did about whatever it is that was on my mind. So again, use your position and your authority for the good of the whole. Of course, there are times when you have to make difficult decisions, unpopular decisions. But in those moments, what I would say to you is search your heart and make sure that you're not just trying to get your way. Make sure that you really are striving for the glory of God. And if you have a wife like mine with a good gut on her, remember, women's intuition plus the Holy Spirit equals the gift of discernment. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. We have to remember that this woman that we're loving and leading is one with us. And we have to develop a kind of atmosphere in the marriage where that is tangible and real and touchable and explainable. You can tell stories that demonstrate the fact. I promise you, husbands, if you will work with your wife to build a oneness in your marriage, you will never even have a discussion about the whole submission issue. It won't even come up because she will feel loved and cherished. She'll be eager to follow a person like you. Marriage is an incredibly sacred thing. And especially young people, teenagers, you're not married yet, but in the next 10 years you probably will be. Please hear me. This is a greatly sacred thing. Treat it with honor, all of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this time You've given us in Your Word. I pray now that You would take it and plant it in the hearts and minds of every hearer. And I pray that You would cause fruit to sprout and grow for the glory of Your name and the good of Your church. Father, as the pastor of this church, I give myself to You in my marriage to treat Kim as I should, to set the kind of example that I should. I only pray for Your mercy. And I pray for your power in that. And I pray that every husband in this room right now will commit himself to loving his wife in the way that you love the church. Please, Lord Jesus, come and make your word real among us, I pray. Amen.